Uh, Matthew 9, verse 25 says, He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who truly see the world as you do. That we would see ourselves as you see us. That we would begin to live out in this world the way you call us to because you become the center and the object of our faith. That we would trust you more than we trust ourselves or anything else. And that we would live lives surrendered wholly to you. Amen. Have a seat. This is our week, week 12 of our series on authority. I feel like I am saying almost the same thing every week as we start these messages, but if you're new, you probably appreciate that so you know where we are. And if you've been here the rest of these other weeks, you probably don't even know what I talked about last week, so you need it too. You're welcome. Uh, we're looking at how Jesus shows his authority in a variety of ways. Uh, we do this because a couple years ago we went through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. That is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And I mentioned at the end of that, one day we may come back and talk through Matthew 8 and 9 about Jesus' authority. Because the Sermon on the Mount ends like this, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so what Matthew 8 and 9 does is it moves forward from that place and shows you how Jesus has authority by how he teaches and how he preaches and how he heals and how he interacts with those around him. And so you see Jesus, he heals leprosy, raises people from the dead, makes people clean, restores people into community. He calls disciples, he interprets the scriptures, all showing his authority. And so Matthew is taking a very focused approach to reinforce who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And when you look at the scriptures and you tend to go through the gospels, you see they each kind of have unique focus of how they go through and relay different things. Like sometimes you can read the same account of a story in different gospel accounts and they are just a little bit different. It's not that they contradict each other. The differences in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that their focus is towards different audiences. And because my message is a little bit shorter today, I kind of want to just talk to you about that so you have that in mind if you actually begin to read the scriptures. Like you look at Mark. Mark, most scholars will tell you, is written to people with what's known as a Roman mindset. Many of them were slaves and most of them lived in Rome. That doesn't mean they are all Roman. They're slaves from all over, but they had been raised in a culture with a Roman mindset. And what that means is the gospel of Mark is very fast-paced, very fast-paced. And so you have a lot of things that focus on Jesus' servanthood and the things that he did because a lot of his readers were servants, many times not necessarily by choice. And so the question comes down in the book of Mark is, who was Jesus? And Mark will tell you throughout his gospel that Jesus was a servant. He was a servant. He's God in flesh, and he came to serve. Mark is by far the briefest gospel account. It's divided into Jesus' deeds and then his death. Action abounds. It's like a Bruce Willis movie or a Michael Bay movie or some summer blockbuster. That's Mark. Mark will use over 150 present tense verbs. About 40% of Mark is Jesus' words. It will include 18 of Jesus' 35 recorded miracles. There's no genealogy, very little attention paid to the first years of Jesus' life. That's Mark. So you say you go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is written to people known as Gentiles. That's people kind of like us. Gentiles in their cultural context have a desire to become the perfect person, the perfect man, the perfect woman. And it's about looks and forms and substance. It sounds like America, right? It's about looks. It's America. So Luke, what he does, he spends a lot of time showing you that Jesus was and is the perfect man. Luke will have the most historical detail of any gospel account. He has the most chronological ordering, meaning it's in the right 
order of any gospel account. He will trace Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, the first man, the founder of humanity. And about half of the gospel of Luke is Jesus' own words. But Luke will also go through and explain a lot of Jewish customs and places and things that are taking place because a lot of his readers wouldn't have understood those things. He also has an emphasis on grace or highlighting Jesus' emotions. You go to the Gospel of John. Most people believe that John was the last gospel that was written. And most of what's in John is pretty unique to John. Uh, John is written to people with what's known as a Greek mindset. And when I say a Greek mindset, they loved all things Greek. They loved Plato and Aristotle and philosophy and things like that. And because of this, in the Gospel of John, you'll see lots of metaphors that get used. You'll see like vine and branches and light and dark and born again and death and life and clean and unclean. It's all an effort to connect to his readers. He has very few Old Testament quotes, but he's got a lot of Old Testament allusions because a lot of people reading this would have been Jews who were dispersed throughout the Greek area. They might have missed and lost some of the scriptures growing up, but they still had the mindset of it. So he would then just allude to those and, and talk about those. And so over 90% of John is unique to John. It's found nowhere else. John doesn't give any of the standard parables that are given in the other gospel accounts, but he focuses very strongly on the humanity and the deity of Jesus. You'll see Jesus use words like, I am. This goes back to Exodus 3.14, where God gives his name as, I am. And so Jesus will say things like, I am the vine, and you are the branches. That means you are not the vine. He will say things like, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and life. All these I am statements that kind of center on Jesus' deity. John will also use keywords like believe and know, and he reappropriates a lot of these Greek philosophical concepts. Then you get to the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel in your Bibles that we're looking at. And this is what we have been seeing for the last 12 weeks, Matthew. When Matthew writes his Gospel account, he writes it mainly to Jews. Some people believe that Matthew was actually written in Aramaic or Hebrew and translated into Greek. There's lots of Jewish sayings and lots of Jewish idioms in the Gospel of Matthew. Like a couple weeks ago, we talked about wineskins. And some people are still even confused about, after that whole message about wineskins, what does that mean? You'll see things are people call Jesus more often in this the son of David than other places. It's a very Jewish thing. Uh, Jesus will talk about cleanliness more often in Matthew than anywhere else. He will talk about fulfilling the law more often in Matthew because these are all very Jewish concepts. And so Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Redeemer, Messiah, the Christ, the King that has come to rescue his people. And so to do this, uh, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith, to King David, who is the king that God said, you will always have someone from your line sitting on the throne. And it also includes a lot of sinful women, which show that anybody is welcome and everybody can come into the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew is roughly 60% Jesus' words. It has a lot of Old Testament references, but it has also has 30 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus and Matthew will call God Father 46 times. That is, that is huge. And it shows the authority of his teaching over and over and over. Following? Anybody go, hey, that's cool information. Okay, good. Open to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. 
Now, every gospel account is, in a sense, talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but it's always contextualized to their audience. We've been going through whom, how Matthew looks at this, and it's a lot of information to remind you that after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew continues to do what he does throughout his gospel and reminds of Jesus' authority. Jesus has healed multiple people at this point, and today Jesus is going to heal blindness. But we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. We're going to spend a lot of time more talking about faith and what faith looks like and what faith in the object of our faith is meant to be. I think when Jesus heals, he can heal blindness as well as spiritual blindness. So this is Matthew 9, starting in verse 27. It says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Again, very Jewish statement. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. If you read a lot of biblical commentators about this, they will actually say that Jesus isn't warning them not to talk about him. It's that every time he did a miracle, people got so focused on the miracle, they'd run around and talk about the miracle and not know. Like there's, there's this thing in the Gospel of John where Jesus heals somebody, and, and they go, Who healed you? He's like, I don't know, <laughs> but I got healed. Woo-hoo! It's like, it's like they stopped talking about Jesus, start talking about the miracles. Jesus like, just don't run out and talk about the miracle. Talk about who I am. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. So what we want to talk about today in order to understand Jesus' authority is the nature of faith, having our eyes open, what that really means, especially in the context of Matthew's gospel. So we have to understand, first and foremost, that it is not our faith, quote-unquote, that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. It's all about Jesus. It's kind of like this. Uh, imagine that you're going on a trip across the country with your family, so you buy plane tickets because nobody wants to ride in a car that long with their family. Maybe it's just mine. I don't know. In every family, there are people who love flying and people who just hate flying. There are some people who are like, I'm going on a plane. Woo! I'm going on a plane. And some people are like, I am going on a plane. You need to strap yourself into a metal tube, and it could plummet out of the sky and kill you dead, dead, dead. It's like, I'm going to go on a plane. No matter where you sit on the spectrum of faith in a plane, once you're in a plane, it's going to go, and it's going to fly you across the country. Whether you have a lot of faith in the plane or a little faith in the plane, the plane's still going to do its job and get you where you need to go, usually. (laughs) Usually. You just need to actually be in the plane. That's kind of a poor analogy, but in another sense, it kind of works a little bit. That's like faith in Jesus. You may be someone who struggles to believe. You're always feeling like, I'm just barely hanging on. I have a lot of questions and doubts, and I'm barely hanging on. Well, you know what? That's okay, because it's Jesus who holds you. You may be someone who has a ton of faith. Nothing ever sways you. Things come your way, you're like, boomy barrel, right through it, and, and you're fine. The thing is, Jesus is still the one holding you. Hebrews 12.2 calls Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. That means he is meant to be the object of our faith. So if you've been paying attention over the last few weeks, are you saved by faith? It's like, all right. Well, no, and yes. It's both. In in the most strictest sense possible, you're saved by Jesus. It is Jesus' righteousness given to us by God's grace that saves us and makes us whole. Our faith is not just in faith. Our faith is in the person of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are not saved because we, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus. It's not something we did. It's that Jesus accepted us. And he is the one who rescued us and died for our sin and brought us close. It all lies within his purview and his strength and his grace and his authority. So what does it mean when Jesus says to these blind guys, according to your faith, be it done to you? 
according to your faith. So, you know, it doesn't, it does not mean that however you much, how much you believe, that's how well you can see. That is not what he's saying to them. Because seriously, it's like, I don't have a lot of faith. Okay, you get, boom, 2,500 vision. Here's your Coke bottle glasses to go along with it. You're welcome. How about you? Boom, 2020. You have a lot of faith. Wow, that's amazing. That's, that's not what it's saying. It's that their faith was in the object of their faith. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah. How do we know this? Because they're crying out to him to heal them, and they say, son of David. Very Jewish statement. They're saying he's the Messiah. In the most technical sense, Jesus was adopted by his father, Joseph. So he is really the son of Joseph. But they call him son of David because that's a messianic term. It's like, well, I believe that you are the Redeemer, the Messiah. They believe that's who Jesus was. This happens all the time throughout the scriptures. Jesus becomes the object of people's faith, as he must become the object of our faith. So what I want to do is walk you through some of the things that we've looked at so far and kind of bring some things around to you. Open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. I think as we walk through this and understand what faith is and Jesus as the object of our faith, I think our lives become much more clear in how we do this. Uh, John chapter 9 is a story I've talked to you a lot about before. I'll probably do it a lot more because it's a great illustration of faith and who Jesus is. Matthew 9, uh, I'm sorry, John verse 9, starting chapter 9, starting verse 1. Wow, I can't even speak today. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I've told you in Jesus' day, that is a normal question. That's a normal question. You're sick, you're hurting, so you did something wrong, so whose fault is it? You are outside of God's love and care. And that's the problem with religion. That's the problem with faith in faith. It all starts with you. How much do you have? How much can you muster up? When we make our salvation simply about our faith and not about Jesus and just having enough faith, we lose sight of the one who has saved us. Jesus must always be the object of our faith. Religion comes along, and when it focuses on your faith, it says there are good people and bad people. There's those that have enough faith and, and those who don't. Jesus comes along, and he says, you're all bad people, and there's me, and I will, and I will save you. Religion's goal is always trying to get things from, from God. I will do these things. I'll have enough faith, therefore God has to give me this. Christianity's goal is always Jesus. This is why religion will look around in a world and it will see suffering and hurting people and they will say, oh, you sick, you lost your job, what'd you do wrong? Religion gives people nothing. And yet this is what is espoused on TV and the radio from Christians and non-Christians alike. And, and don't get me wrong, sometimes if something goes wrong in your life, it is your fault. Okay, sometimes, like, like if, if you don't have any money to make rent because you shot it in your arm or drank it all, yeah, that's your fault. You live in the, the park in a tent because your best friend is spelled P-O-T, yeah, okay, your fault, right? But, but if you have a kid who's sick or maybe you were born blind or some, something, something happens in your life, these people would say, well, if you had enough faith, if you did it better, if you just followed more, well, then God would do these things. Just have more faith faith and it all becomes about faith and not about Jesus this is what Jesus says verse 3 it was not that this man or his parents it's not this man sent or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him what Jesus says is God did it God did it there's a propensity for people to run from the fact that yes God is in charge and God has authority Christians are always trying to find ways to make excuses for God and defend God for things he never tries to defend himself against. There's become a search to try and let God off the hook for all the problems in the world as if he isn't sovereign. But you cannot get around God's sovereignty. Amos 3.6 says, When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? 
How about Lamentations 3.38? It is, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? See, in the Scriptures, God is never concerned with you questioning Him or blaming Him. And when it says these things, it's not that, say, someone goes and robs a bank and they, and they shoot somebody else. God didn't make them shoot somebody else, but God can always bring good things out. In His sovereignty, God can allow certain things to happen to bring good things about on the back side. This is why if you blame or question God, you don't blame or question just to get yourself off the hook. If you blame Him, you better make sure that you understand that He is in control and not you. This is what we talked about a little bit last week. And this is something we will struggle with our entire lives because we always want to be in control. We always want to call the shots. We always want to think, say what things should be. But if you take a step back and you trust God to actually be in control of all things, it can be very comforting. Because God is in charge, and we don't have to be, and we can sit back and relax because He is done with authority. Jesus says that the works of God might be displayed in Him. God had this calamity happen so that something could happen for God's work? Yes. That God would get glorified as people would grow. 2,000 years later, we are still reading about this guy and learning about faith from this. And then Jesus will go to heal this guy's blindness. Now open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This is a parallel account of what we looked at the very first week of this series on authority. Uh, Matthew 8 and Mark 1, there are parallel accounts. Uh, this one's not about blindness, it's about leprosy. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40, it says, A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, if you will means if you want to, if you are willing, because a lot of times religious experts were not willing to even notice people who were sick. Verse 41 says, Move with pity. That's where we get our word compassion from. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now, this is a very remarkable story in the scriptures because leprosy is so feared at this time that if you got a blemish on your skin, you would have to tear your clothes, dishevel your hair, move outside of your community. If you saw anybody who wasn't a leper coming towards you, you would have to yell out when they were very far away, I'm unclean! I'm unclean! Don't come near me. Stay away. Kind of like how we should all feel when we use the public restrooms, especially one at the gas station, because it's like, I need to disinfect. <laughs> Don't come. Yeah, okay, anyway. It, it was against the law for a person this time who had leprosy to touch anybody who didn't have leprosy. Any rabbi would know this. There's a stigma with leprosy. It wasn't just as leprosy needed to be healed. It needed to be cleansed. You were unclean. This is what happens in scriptures. And Jesus in Matthew 8, and here you see, he actually says, I will be clean, and he cleanses him. When Jesus becomes the object of our faith, our lives begin to change. You look at this guy with leprosy. There's something about Jesus that would inspire this guy to violate the law with the rabbi to approach him and speak to him. Suffering people get drawn to Jesus throughout the New Testament, exactly as we should be drawn to him because he becomes the object of our faith. Our lives change. He renews our hearts and our lives and our minds when we focus on who he is. If you look at sick people and how Jesus notices them and responds to them, you will see that Jesus is good news coming to people who were sick and lost and didn't know the left from the right and where everything was going to end. They came and they trusted him. And this is where Jesus is amazing. You would expect if a rabbi had the power to heal, he would heal the guy first and then touch him. But Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus does, the text deliberately tells you this, is he touches the guy while he is still unclean, while he is still leprous. And then he says, be clean. You know how many people in our world are hurting and starved for touch? 
Lots, lots of people. There's a study UCLA did, and they found that people who receive 10 meaningful touches a day will actually live longer. Uh, Gary Smalley was doing a marriage seminar one time, and he said he talked about this to the crowd, and he saw this husband reach over to his wife and go, It's funny, in first service, there's a couple sitting right here, and, and the wife leans over to her husband, and she goes, <laughs> it's kind of funny. See, when somebody loves you, when they put their arms around you, it is literally life-giving. And Jesus wants this leper to remember this touch. He, Jesus does what nobody else would do. The last thing that happens before this guy is healed is he is touched in his uncleanness. Jesus touches the untouchable. Do you think that story doesn't get around? I think people don't begin to hear about that, how Jesus touched and healed. What Jesus does to us is meant to be a story that gets around so people hear about his healing and his grace and his goodness. In Matthew 9, a couple weeks ago, there's a woman who's been bleeding for over a decade who fights through a crowd just to touch the fringe of Jesus' robe. Why? Because word got around. In Mark chapter 10, there's a blind guy named uh, Bartimaeus, and he shouts so loudly to Jesus in desperation for, of his blindness. People are like, you need to just be quiet. Stop bothering Jesus, but he won't shut up. In Mark 10, 47, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus does. And Jesus touches him, and Jesus heals him because word gets around. In Matthew 8, we talked about this Roman centurion with the servant, he has, who's the servant's at home and, and suffering. And the guy crosses all these ethnic and social boundaries just to go before Jesus. And he says, would you have mercy on my servant? You don't even have to come there because I'm a man under authority, and I have heard about you, and I know who you are, and you just have to say the word. Why? Because word got around. In the verses we look at today, Matthew 9 and 28, it says, When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, so they follow him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. He didn't have to touch them. He didn't have to do that. He wanted to touch them. It reminds them that God has all authority, but he still longs to touch us as well, to care for us even in the midst of our brokenness. Jesus comes to proclaim the manifold kingdom of God. And that meant he healed bodies as well as souls. In Matthew 9, just a few weeks ago in this series, some friends break through a roof in a house to get the paralyzed buddy to Jesus. And because, again, word got around. And when Jesus looks at this guy on this mat, his first words, Matthew 9, to our son, your sins are forgiven. First off, that shows Jesus' authority. But people who saw this, they got angry about this. Like, how dare you? How can you say this stuff? So Jesus says, what's harder, to forgive sins or to heal a body? It's much harder to forgive sins because it's going to take Jesus' death on a cross to forgive those sins. And so Jesus says so that you may understand the Son of Man has now been given all authority. He then heals the guy's body as well. Jesus heals souls. He heals bodies. He notices what we need, not just what we want. He does things in his time, in his way, for his glory, for his purposes, and to bring joy in the end to his people. He becomes the object of our faith. People who were sick and people who were suffering and people who were hurting and dying knew one thing, even in the midst of all their pain, that Jesus did care and Jesus did see and Jesus did touch. In Mark chapter 3, there's a guy with a withered hand, and he comes to Jesus, and it's on what's known as a Sabbath day. On the Sabbath, there are all kinds of rules and laws about a Sabbath. You couldn't do any work. Healing somebody, according to the Jews, was work, so you couldn't do that. It, we call these stupid human rules, by the way. Okay? So there's a crowd around, a lot of religious experts, and so this guy's standing there. So Jesus says, hey, guys, what do you think? 
It's a guy right here with a withered hand. It's a Sabbath day. Someone's suffering intensely. Is it, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? And, everyone's, and everyone stays silent. And he goes, he goes here's the suffering person right in front of you. Should I do something? Nobody says a word. They are all quiet. Then the text says, Mark 3, 5, and he looked around at them with anger, greed at their hardness of heart. He says, I don't know about you, but that's really sobering for me because sometimes I read this and think, oh, I would have spoken up for that guy. I said, yes, Jesus, heal him. But really, I don't know if I would have. I don't know if I would have because many times the object of my faith is not Jesus. It's my own comfort. It's my own time spent alone, my, my time doing what I want to do. It's, it's maybe my, my things that I own. Many times, Jesus is not the object of my faith, and it causes me to say, stay silent because there are suffering and hurting people in this world, and I get preoccupied with my own little world, and I am silent. I don't speak the word. I don't have Jesus as the object of my faith. And if that's true for me, I would assume it's got to be true for some of you. See, Jesus is the one, though. He's the one that speaks up. Jesus heals this guy. He touches him. He brings new life again to this guy. Eventually, for all of us, as Christians, we say Jesus died on the cross for our sins. This is the idea that Jesus died to rescue and redeem and make us whole again, to heal us. In the book of Hebrews, it says of Jesus' death, it says his blood speaks a better word. It speaks better. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 5 says, By his stripes we are healed. Stripes are wounds. The word for healing in the Hebrew text is also sometimes translated as the word salvation. By his wounds we have salvation. Jesus dies for our sins. Then he is resurrected from the grave. Jesus goes to the Father as the object of their faith to bring us healing and hope and restoration again. And then what he does is he hands off that mission to a people called the church. The church, you and me. In the book of Acts, they begin to grow, but not because they can out-argue everybody else, not because they figure out how to win culture wars, but because their faith is in Jesus. He becomes the object of their faith. I think for us, the question really comes down to, after all these weeks of looking at this, what or who is your faith in? Too often, we say our faith is in Jesus, but we don't act like it or live like it. We act like our faith is in our income or our family or our stuff or our job or the person that you're dating. What is the most important thing to you? What is the object of your faith? If you could get everybody away from you from talking, just sit down and just deal with it right there. What is the object of your faith? It's very interesting. In John chapter 9, after Jesus heals this guy born blind, the Pharisees are all bent out of shape because of it. The Pharisees are people who would say the object of their faith was God. And so Jesus in, in John 9, 39 says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What you see in this is the Pharisees do the exact opposite progression of the blind guy. The Pharisees are those who said, oh, no, we really see. But you look at the blind guy, he goes from darkness to light. He experiences the glory of God. The Pharisees think they're experiencing the glory of God, but they're only experiencing the glory of religion, which was the object of their faith. And they go from light, thinking they see, into darkness. Jesus showing them that they're actually blind. And too many of us run around in darkness and blindness thinking that we see because the object of our faith is not Jesus. 
It needs to be Jesus for us to true and truly really see. Merrill Tenney wrote this. He said, deliberate rejection of the light means that the light within is darkness. Echoes Matthew 6.23. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And guys, I know I barely touched on the verses in Matthew today. I get that. But at this point, I want to take you where Matthew is trying to move us towards. What is the object of your faith? Jesus has authority to open our eyes and open our hearts. He has the authority to touch us and to speak a better word and to heal us. But he becomes the object of our faith in that. And if I could give you something very practical to do over the next week, it would be this. Go through your day, every day this week, and say, Jesus, give me eyes to see. Give me eyes to see. Let me see what I have as a focus of my faith, and then let me also see the world around me. Where do you see a need? And honestly, he will bring things to your eyes. He will make you see. You ask God for a heart to see like he sees, to care for those around you like he does. When Jesus truly becomes the object of our faith, everything changes because we become more like him. And you may think that being really religious throughout the week will make you very somber. No, you'll live in great joy and great joy. We have been told in Hebrews 12 too that Jesus endures the cross for the joy set before him. Even the cross, even his impending death for him was the thing that brought joy because he knew what it was going to bring on the backside. With Jesus the object of our faith, we are not a people who need to get angry or bitter like so many people who are hurting around us. We are a light full of hope of Christ in this world. When we talk about authority over blindness, yes, Jesus has authority to heal people who are blind in the passage of Matthew. But he also has authority over our blindness, over all the things that we want to blind ourselves so we don't actually see the truth. He will open our eyes. He touches us with the Spirit so we can actually see. This is why the gospel is always called good news. That it is Jesus who comes, and he is the one who is making all things new. He is the one who removes the scales from our eyes. He is the one who takes the calluses off of our hearts so we can truly feel and see what he wants us to see again. We ask, would you open my eyes to see what you want me to see, that he really becomes the object of our faith. This is one of the things that communion is supposed to remind us of. It's a place where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine and the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. It's a place of a recentering of our focus on who he is. It's a place where we get to take all of the distractions that we have around us and realize that none of these things are the object of our faith. It is only meant to be Jesus. So we recenter here at this place so that we could lay everything down and put our vision exactly where it needs to be on the person of Christ. The band's going to come up. As they do, when you invite us to take communion, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, maybe the object of your faith is scattered all over the place, or you've got blinders in your heart and you want them taken away and you want to begin to see with the eyes that Jesus calls you to see with. They'd love to pray with you about that. If you have anything going on in your life right now, they'd love to pray with you about that. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving's part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he has done. There were some donuts back there last service. I don't know what's back there now, but it's usually something. Grab something to eat, meet some other people, and begin to develop relationships where maybe you can get honest enough with somebody else, where they could say to you, what is the object of your faith? And you could be honest enough to say what it really is. Honest enough that when it's not Jesus, 
You could say, right now, the object of my faith is not Jesus. It is this thing. And then maybe they could speak some hope and truth into your life to where it could refocus back upon the person of Christ. As we will forever be in bondage when our focus is on anything other than Jesus. We're going to actually talk about that next week a little bit. But anytime our focus gets in this place where it is not Jesus, we become more and more enslaved by things around us. We always think we know better than he does how to live our lives, and yet he is constantly refocusing us and resetting us. And I think that's what's kind of happening today. I think he wants to take and refocus and reset us that he becomes the object of our faith. So we begin to live in the hope that he has provided. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust in what you have done and continue to do. I ask that you would recenter us and refocus us on who you are. That just like in the text that we looked at last week, when you take Mary and Martha and you refocus them on who you are in the midst of their pain and suffering, I ask the same thing would happen today. In the midst of our blindness, you would, you would pull the scales from our eyes and you'd refocus us upon you so that we would see who you truly are, and who you have called us to be. That we would honor you with more than just words. We would honor you with how we live our life. And that we would understand that you have all authority because it's by your wounds that we have been saved and healed and brought close into relationship with you again. And that we would understand that that healing that we have received, we can then go out and be healers in the world around us. That we can take all that we have been given and give it away because you will continue to fill us. I ask that you would speak truth into our hearts today and reset us and refocus us on the object of our faith, which is you. And that we would live our lives outside these walls in great worship and honor of who you are. That the entire world would know. That we would speak it and proclaim it that our God is a God who saves. That our God is a God who removes blindness. God, quite honestly, it's very hard when we begin to see again because we see all the stuff that's in our own life. But we thank you that you are the one by your wounds who has taken away our sin and taken away our shame and restored us and reset us to be the people you have called us to be. So teach us to walk with you as the object of our faith in all things. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.